Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Zachman, and with me, as usual, is Carl Bialik. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Carl. Thanks for joining me. And even though we have still have a Masters 1000 in front of us and the schedule was packed with lower-level events last week, I think there's a lot to talk about. And th the first thing that I think is newsworthy from this last week is a, a really striking age difference between the two champions on the WTA Tour. We have France Francesca Schiavone, um, who is 36, I believe, who won in Bogota, winning her first title since more than a year. And the other one at the other extreme was, I hope I'm getting the pronunciation in the ballpark of correct, Marketa Vandrusova, um, who is from the Czech Republic, who won her first title in Beale in Switzerland. And um, obviously big accomplishments for both, but at very, very extreme opposite ends of their career. And we can talk about Schiavone in a little bit, but the first thing I want to talk about following up on, on our brief mention of Daria Kazakina, who won a premiere in Charleston a couple weeks ago, um, the first thing I wanted to talk about, Carl, is, is how much we should read into first titles like this. And players are, even more than rankings, I think players focus on winning titles. It's a hu huge accomplishment. And for someone who's 17 years old, uh, it's an, an enormous accomplishment to win a title at the WT level, TA level. Um, but my question to you to kick us off is, is how much does it really matter? I mean, she, she won, she beat some decent players. She beat one, one top 20 player in Barbara Streetsova. Um, but it's the sort of people you play, you play in maybe qualifying at a premier mandatory or the first couple rounds in a grand slam. So, so how much do you think a, a win like this tells us about someone who, who just won her first title at the, the WTA international level? I don't read too much into it. You know, one thing that I may turn into a tiresome theme of this podcast by harping on so much, but that I always find fascinating is how a very tiny difference in one match could, could change everything. There are examples of, uh, of runs to titles that we remember from great champions who came very close to losing early in tournaments. And, you know, she had to um, qualify and in the very first round of qualifying was pushed to six four in the third set by Tessa Andrianya Fitrimo. Uh, another theme of this podcast that will emerge probably is, I'm just going to go ahead and try to pronounce names that I'm, I'm guessing on. But, you know, th that could have gone differently and then the whole tournament could have gone differently. So, so I don't want to read but it's it's still impressive, especially considering how little tour experience she's had. I think what, what impresses me more than someone who's young but has had a bunch of chances and then breaks through after getting through a tough early match is someone who hasn't played much at tour level, mostly has results against players like that first-round qualifying opponent who are far outside the top 100, and then the first time they get a sniff of real competition, even if it's not the top 10, they managed to win. So, so that, that, that's what's particularly striking to me about this teenage champion. Yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of that. It certainly is interesting to look at her results and, and see that all five main draw matches, she won, she didn't have any blowouts, but she won pretty convincingly. Uh, she won straight sets in all five. But as you point out, first couple of rounds in qualifying, she had to go three sets. She, won, she lost her first set in the tournament to um, Tessa, whose last name defeats me. 
Um, one thing I, I, I checked on before we started this recording was 17-year-olds who've won WTA internationals in the past. I, I vaguely remembered running this query before and finding it fascinating. It's, it's very rare for a 17-year-old to, to win a title at the international level. Um, it was the first time someone's pulled that off since 2015 when uh, Anna Konya did it. Uh, before that, the year before, Donna Vekic accomplished the same thing in Kuala Lumpur. But before that, you have to go all the way back to, let me check, 2006 for Vanya King. Um, Tamira Pashek won a title at age 15 that same year. Um, Michelle Krychek won in uh, 2006 as well. Nicole Vitasova a couple years before that. So those are your 17-year-olds who, who win titles. And it, it's kind of a, a bit of a paradox because looking at a list like that, that's not exactly the company you want to be in as a future star. I mean, maybe Konya will turn out to be great. Donna Vekic, the jury's still out on. But a lot of those names, like decent players, but but not future stars. Um, but on the other hand, you, you don't want to not win a tournament because winning the tournament puts you in in bad company. So it's, 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 it's kind of strange to think about that, that by doing something so good, she put herself in, in a group that actually doesn't have as strong of a future. And you can go back further and find and Safarova won an international at 17, I think uh, Sharapova did, and of course other greats have done so as well. Um, but it brings it, it brings up a, a more general question of of what all can go wrong. Like in order to be a great player at 25 or even 30, the question is how much does it really matter what you're doing at 17? You know, a lot of players who are having some very successful careers in their in their late 20s now were I mean, just thinking about where to go to college at age 17, let alone um, trying to win titles on tour and, and clearly not winning them. So I guess my question on that, Carl, is, is we're not, we're not going to count this against her, but, but how, how would you compare this to someone who, I don't know, let's say a 17-year-old who goes in and wins, I don't know, Australian Open Juniors, let's say, or French Open Juniors. Um, it would be against a smaller age cohort, obviously, um, but it's it, it's a little bit more of a it, it's a little bit more of an elite event, even though she doesn't have to play older competition. So, so just to phrase it more directly, what do you think is a bigger deal: winning an international against older competition, or winning an, an elite event like a Grand Slam Juniors event against your own age cohort? I can I can guess. This feels like also like another theme of this podcast, you should probably go off and study it and uh, let us know uh, what, what turns out to be a better predictor. I, I would guess that you'll have more data on the juniors since there are four junior Grand Slam tournaments each year, and we're talking about just a handful of 17-year-old uh, winners at, of tour-level events. But um, I, I think what's really impressive about the Junior Grand Slam, as you hinted, is they're playing the best of their age co cohort as opposed to everyone outside the top or only players outside the top 50, except for maybe one or two matches from all ages. So, you know, that, as you say, is a much wider age range, but they're not really playing a lead competition at these international events typically. So I also think if you read through the list of junior champions at the girls and boys level over the last decade, there'd be a lot more familiar names, although there would also be some relative duds. Dud is, is too insulting a word, but someone who didn't fulfill the promise, didn't ever, ever really contend for a 
what do we call it? A seniors Grand Slam title, a, a professional Grand Slam title. I guess seniors could could be the John McEnroe playing in his fifties set. Uh, I think what whichever whichever one you do, there are many things that can go wrong between that stage of your career and the stage where you really are going to be contending for the professional Grand Slam titles. Uh, one one of the things is that you may like one of the uh, men's champions this past week be consistent and a good enough player to stay in rallies and stay in matches and outlast players, but not necessarily ever grow out of the body type you have and get stronger and get taller and become physical enough to be able to to win consistently against top 10 professional players. And I say necessarily because you can't really predict how someone is going to fill out and uh, physical development has really changed and stretched over careers, uh, and you know there there are drug suspicions as well that that enter into it when that happens and when the player suddenly emerges in their mid to late twenties. But just because somebody is good enough to win close matches against non elite professional competition at seventeen doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be winning against elite competition at twenty two or twenty three. Yeah, absolutely. And a big factor, I think, is, you mentioned this in, in passing, is it, 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 there's a lot of years between age 17 and when someone's probably going to hit their peak. And there's a just in the process of, of physically growing up, in the process of, of training enough to become an elite level professional, you run a ton of injury risk. And and some of the names I mentioned earlier on that list, they've, they've had some injury problems. Um, and another name that who wanted to touch on today is, is Borna Torich, who won his first title in Marrakesh this past week. He's 20, I believe, so he's still very much on the upswing. But I think we would have said, we, we would have had a, more hopes for Borna Torich's future maybe 18 months or two years ago, actually even even one year ago, um, than we do now, because he, he had some injury problems. He had a big slump um, towards the end of last year. Uh, he, he's had a, a tough time just continuing steadily on the upswing, which in the men's game now is kind of what you have to do. There's no there's no sudden uh, rocketing to the top. It's just a matter of, of very gradually over a course of maybe five years or more, uh, inching your way up. And and this is the first time we've seen him since, since I think he upset Nadal, or you can put in the same category, the first time we've seen him keep inching upward as opposed to just sort of plateauing in the number 50 in the world kind of range. So it's a similar question to, to what I was asking about Ron Duseva. With, with Chorich, we, we've seen more of him in the past. I think we both have, have watched a fair number of his matches. Um, how much do you think a title like this one matters for him? Well, I, I warned that it could be a theme to describe just how close a champion came to losing early. And he needed to go to a third set tiebreak against Rita El Amrani, a wild card from outside the top 600 uh, from Morocco, who is 28, so not a, not a rising prospect. And that was early in the tournament, too. So, so that could have gone very differently as well. Um, I, I am still pretty skeptical about his chances of being a top five, top three player. I mean, something you often remind me of is somebody eventually is going to have to be in the top five at the age that he's peaking and he could go on a couple of runs, sure, and he could still develop. But I I find it hard to predict great success for a man 
without a really strong serve and or a really strong forehand. And his game doesn't really have either of those elements as crucial parts of his success now, uh, even for short forehands, which should be, you know, short, high, mid, mid court, uh, plenty of time to get to forehands. When, when ATP players get those, I'm guessing without the, without the ball tracking data to support it, that the, the top players win that point 75 to 80% of the time. And I just don't trust his forehand to win that point for him often enough. And that's a real liability uh, in, in winning matches. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I um, like, as you say, we, we might have had this conversation about Borna Torch specifically even, but, but I, I like to say that you know, somebody's got to be in the top five at, at the point where he's peaking. Somebody's got to be in the top 10. And, and just as a side note, I happen to notice this right before we, we started this recording. This is, this is such a weird quirk about some, some also quirky top ten, former top 10 players. There are three ATP challengers this week, um, one, in, one in Bradenton in the US and the other two in Asia. And in all three, there's a former top 10 player competing. Um, in Bradenton, there's Jurgen Meltzer, who is, as we all remember, dominated the top 10 for, for at least a few weeks. And in, uh, let's see, in Taipei, Marcos Bagdadis is the top seed. And in Qingdao, um, Yanko Tipsarevich is there. Also uh, a player who I'm sure you all remember uh, really making his mark in the top 10. Although it's, it's, it is always striking to look back at his record and, and see just how long he hung in there at, at number eight or nine. And that isn't entirely a digression because I think it's easy to look at Chorich and, and it, his game is, is pretty similar to, to Novak Djokovic's, at least in, in how he'd like it to work, maybe not how it actually does work on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you compare him to Djokovic, then I mean, anyone's going to pale in comparison playing that style of tennis. And he specifically does. Like to your point about not having not having the great shots he needs or the the the, the shots that will generate enough winners at tour level. Certainly, comparing Djokovic, it's like he does everything Djokovic does, but ten or twenty percent worse. And that ten or twenty percent makes a huge difference. Um, but it's interesting. I think you could say a lot of the same things about someone like Tipsarevic. And I mean, Tipsarevich is obviously not a future Hall of Famer or anything. He never came close to winning a Grand Slam. So some of the things that George would like to accomplish, I mean, telling him he could turn out like Nico Tipsarevich might not be what he wants to hear at age 20 on the, on the heels of his first title. But on the other, on the other hand, um, in, until he was injured, Tipsarevich had put together quite a good career. And if, the, if that's a, if, if, I don't know if it's fair to say that's a baseline, that's a minimum for George, but, but if it is, that, that actually bodes pretty well. Well, I was careful. I said top five. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, it, it'd be interesting to look at the number of at some point in their top, in the top five players on tour now versus the number at some point in the top 10. It feels like, and it makes sense that it would be the case given the sort of tight bunching and the points that more players shuttle in and out of the six to 10 range. Whereas top five has been at least in this anomalous last almost decade of big four, big five dominance, a more stable group. And it uh, seems like it takes some deep Grand Slam and Masters runs to, to take up residence there. So, yeah, I, I think of, uh, of Tipsarevich often as, as one of the examples. Meltzer is a good one. He had really nice, I think, 2009 and then 
never really threatened to get back in that top 10 range after he fell out of it. I think did Monaco, Juan Monaco may have briefly dipped into the top 10, but to, to get to five seems tougher. And, you know, for Chorich to even get to the stage of Janko Tipsarovic, he needs to either stay healthy or like Tipsarovic have his injury problems after he, he peaks and, and fulfills his potential. So as you said earlier, it's also a matter of, of the uncertainty of someone this young, will they manage to, to continue to develop and not have big setbacks physically as they're trying to improve and get at least to whatever their maximum potential is. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And in, it is interesting whenever you're looking at a player like like Chorich or, or anyone from from that general generation who's who's stuck outside the top thirty or forty. Think about what they do have to accomplish because we often forget. I think about some of the some of the impressive things that the non-elite players have to do over the course of a year. So obviously, Tsarevich has never been in a Grand Slam final or something like that. But in the course of keeping yourself at number eight in the world, um, you're playing pretty well week in, week out. You're winning a few matches at, at pretty much every slam. And that, and I hate to use the word consistency because it's the most abused and misused word by tennis commentators. But, but over the course of a season, it really helps to be, to, to be consistently winning a few matches every week unless somehow you can, you can go and, and get, to the, get to the semifinals or final of a slam or win a couple Masters 1000 events. And that's certainly a lot harder to do than just get to the quarters of all these uh, these 32 player draws. But on the one thing you, you briefly mentioned is is that you think in the next generation once the once the big four and friends are are mostly retired is we could see a lot more shuttling out of the in and out of players at the very top range. So as you point out the top 5 has has been pretty static for a long time. I mean, you'll occasionally see Someone, someone get in there other than the big four and Wawrinka, but for the most part, it's those guys and David Ferrer um, for, for a long, long time. And I have a hard time imagining that being the case in, say, five years when when they're all retired. So we, we could see players who are, are getting up to number two or number three without really looking like the level of elite player that we're used to. And something that I had in, in my notes that I wanted to touch on this week was was what that means, and what that and a few other things mean for Davis Cup. So we did, we talked a lot about Davis Cup last week, but we didn't talk much about the the specific um, the specific teams that have made it to the semis that'll be that'll still be in it in September. Um, and it's interesting to to speculate what that's going to look like because what, what what we've had for for a few years now, more than a few years, is is some some teams that are are powerhouses largely because of one really good player and a couple of other other um, you know, supporting cast who can win some matches. So if Djokovic shows up for every tie, then Serbia is really tough to beat. If Nadal shows up for every tie, um, Spain's really, really tough to beat. And with those guys out of it, it's going to be tougher for one player to, to really lead a Davis Cup team to, to a championship. And I, I said something on Twitter a few weeks ago that the Canadian team looks pretty good a few years out. We've got... Um, if, if Ronich is healthy, plus Vasek Pospisil could turn out to, to improve a lot. Then if Shapovalov, um, um, Felix Algar, Alisam, um, some good young players who, who could end up putting being sort of a, a dynasty in Davis Cup. But a lot of the other stars we're seeing come up now, um, like 
Tsitsipas from Greece, um, Grigor Dimitrov, not, not a super young star at this point, but Dimitrov and team are both from countries without any supporting cast. Um, Kaspar Rud from Norway, no supporting cast. Um, and we've seen that a little bit with David Goffin. I, I know you you like to talk about about Goffin. He's, he's managed to lead the Belgian team to some pretty strong performances in Davis Cup, even without having another star, certainly any, anybody who you consider a star. Um, so you, you mentioned in our notes that, that you think Goff is in, Goffin is kind of overlooked among, um, um, among players in his, uh, in his generation. And we're going to be focusing a lot more on that generation once the big four are finally all fading out. So what do you, what do you see as the, the prospects for Goffin at that point when the field thins out a little bit? A lot to answer there. I don't want to let pass that in your windup to to Davis Cup, you mentioned offhandedly that in five years, all the big five will be retired. So I want to know uh, when I'm done with my spiel here, which one you think will retire last and in what year. But assuming that, yes, eventually age catches up with everyone and they they won't all say, hey, this next generation after us is really weak. Let's stick around and pick up some more titles and some more uh, match wins and, and pile on the records for a while longer. And, and assuming they don't all stay healthy and, and competing, which, you know, right, right now they are the top five, which is remarkable given that in a month, a little over a month, they'll, they'll all be at least 30. Uh, at some point, that next group is going to have at least a little bit of time competing near the top. It could be by then the younger players, the players younger than the Goffin, Dimitrov, Raonic, Nishikori, Chilich kind of range uh, will catch up and and uh, and surpass their their elders. Uh, but there could be a period there for Goffin, let's say, to get into the top five to to win a slam. I, I've just been really impressed. You brought up consistency and then derided it as you have before, and I understand why. And another another point I'd like to bring up is the the point system and the prize money system really rewarding players who go very deep one week and then get eliminated early the next week over players who consistently make the round of 16, the quarterfinals, uh, the, the latter player could get more wins, but be ranked behind that first player, that first player being, let's say, a Vavrinka, who will go win the U.S. Open and then lose in the first round of two of his next three tournaments, let's say. Um, with with Goffin, he's more in that second group. He's, he seems to more and more be beating the players he should be beating and getting some wins over top 20, top 10 players. He's also losing some really close matches. He had he lost in straight sets to Kyrgios in Miami, but it was a match that he probably should have won. He had way more break points. He won a higher percentage of receiving points. He has had some close matches against the big five at slams, in, sometimes early with unlucky draws, sometimes later. And I, I could see a draw opening up. I could see him playing inspired tennis on any given day. And and being one to break through. And in Davis Cup, he certainly could carry Belgium to a title. I think one of the gripes people have about Davis Cup is the feeling that on whether Djokovic or Murray or Federer or Nadal has decided this is the year that they are gunning for it and wanting to win. And it's kind of if they have decided and you're in their way to the title, then you're going to lose probably. And if they haven't, then it's wide open. But is it meaningful if the very best players aren't 
trying to win it that year. Uh, it could be that by the time that that Canadian team comes of age, the the landscape of Davis Cup has changed. I, I think you and I are probably on this, the side of it's it's an amazing, amazing event and shouldn't be changed too much. And maybe we're trying to change for the sake of change too often. But either whatever we think, the ITF seems committed to trying new things. And it could be that that change in format means that more consistently the top players will participate. So if Shapovalov is number one in the world, current form would suggest he would skip Davis Cup more often than he would play it, but maybe the tournament has changed enough or incentives have changed enough that he does consistently play and there is a Canadian powerhouse, which I think would be a pretty exciting development. Uh, but, but yeah, GoFan seems, given the current kind of weakened landscape of, of competition, he seems game to play every year right now and to really enjoy it and to do well in the format. and. They have some good doubles players, and uh, they look like a threat to win it this year. They're in the semis. Yeah, that's that's right. And in in the semis, they'll play Australia, which is another team I find interesting because if if Nick Kyrgios and Bernard Tomic actually continue to play tennis, hopefully continue to improve, um, participate in Davis Cup. Of course, that's always the asterisk. Uh, that's another team that could be an absolute dynasty because. It, in the world of Davis Cup, you, you don't have to have you know, two of the top five players in the world like a Federer or Vavrinka. You just have to have two singles players who give you a chance on any day. And, and Kyrgios can end up being number one. We talked about that last week. So he, he's, he goes far beyond that. Not only that, I think Australia has, has done a pretty good job over the years turning out um, doubles players. They could they could put um, Sam Groth out there, who's, who's pretty solid. Um, John Patrick Smith is coming up, and he's actually – been coming up for a long time. He's another double specialist they could they could put out there at any given time. So that 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 shapes up very nice for Australia's future, I think, in Davis Cup. So that'll be interesting to see uh, in a few months with the Goffin team against the Kyrgios Tomic team. That could that could be something we see recurring over the next three to five years. Um, to touch on a couple of things you mentioned. First off, I want to answer your question about the last to retire of the Big Four. It's a good question, calling me out on the the five year timetable. Could be wrong it could be six or seven but i'm going to go with a a wimbledon 2022 retirement of andy murray to finally close the door on the big four um i'm, I'm a, i don't know how federer will retire or when but i, I just can't imagine he, he'll still be around at that point i think nadal's injuries will catch up with him by then and i think we could get a lot of cl of, of clarity with what djokovic's situation is over the rest of this year but you can see him along the whole running the whole gamut of possible outcomes and he whatever has been going on with him could be something that leads him to just call it quits at the end of this year or next for personal reasons or injuries we don't know about or he could he could go win a couple slams in 2021 i i can see it going either way but i think that the weighted average of those outcomes is probably another three years for djokovic and and i think murray will stick around he could end up playing he seems like someone who would who could play a very limited schedule, kind of like what Federer is doing now. He wouldn't. I don't think he'd have major problems skipping the clay season. He wouldn't mind that too much. And there, I think that there's there's so much of. Um, I'm not sure how to put this exactly. There, 
he has so much to play for at Wimbledon every year. I think he could stick around for a couple extra years, just playing, just playing slams plus a couple masters and, and taking another crack at Wimbledon. Kind of like we, we've seen Federer do before where it seems like he's, he's, he's playing everything else because he, that's what you do and staying in shape and giving himself a good, good chance every week, but really, really Federer still in it because he wanted to win another Wimbledon. So I can see Murray doing the same thing. That's my, my big four forecast. Um, Another thing you mentioned was was David Goffin starting to get some wins against the top ten, which is true as far as it goes. And he 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 has a sparkling five and thirty two record against the top ten now. Uh, he did win his last match against Team in Australia. That was a four setter. Um, and of course, a lot of the guys who he's losing to in those thirty two matches he's lost against the top ten are the people we're talking about who will be gone uh, and and leave him a little bit of a window. So the question then is is he losing to these guys because he can't beat these specific guys um the big four mostly or is it because he has just a, a just barely sub elite sort of game so so when whether it's shapovalov or, or alexander zverev or maybe maybe ronich sticking around for a while um he's, he's one of the players uh, goffin has lost to already um is, is it that, that goffin just doesn't have the game to beat whoever's playing the very best tennis in the world and, and i think that's that's a very much an open question, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, but sitting with Davis Cup for a minute, I don't want this to turn into the talking about messing with the tennis schedule podcast, although I'm sure we could talk about that for an hour every week. But you mentioned that the ITF it seems really committed to tweaking stuff, getting more participation from top players. That always seems to be the gold standard. Anything they do, they, they wish they could replay the last 10 years and get Federer playing every event and Nadal playing every event. Um, so the, what I wonder, Carl, this is something I, I, I always, this is the first question in my head whenever I read about plans to restructure Davis Cup is let's say that we keep Davis Cup mostly the same, except we only play it every other year. So half as many Davis Cups. If that had been the case for the last 10, 15 years, do you think that Federer or Nadal would have played more ties than they did already with than they did in 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 the current structure with Davis Cup happening every year. That's a great question. Uh, I think they there's a good chance they would have played just as often as they did if it were every year. So they would have played their percentage of participation would have doubled, and maybe that would have made each year that it was played feel much more significant. I don't know if that trade-off is worth it in terms of losing all the energy and the, the development benefits and the benefits of bringing tennis to new places uh, just to have them, just to have each, each competition at the world group level feel more meaningful. Um, I, I guess the advantage beyond just that you, you lose some some years you, you you get less dilution part of the advantage of less dilution is there's a greater chance the players play each other i think that's what people are lamenting indirectly and and sometimes directly i, I saw some stats tweeted during this this last round of davis cup about this that you just haven't seen very many matches between the big four at the davis cup level i think you've maybe seen one maybe two uh and and not for a long time that they that they kind of chose years and they might still kind of look at each other or maybe coordinate through back channels on, w on which years they're trying to win. But there are fewer windows to do that if you are uh, 
if you are only able to do it every two years and, and you're potentially towards the end of your career, although again, I, I think there's a wide variance in, in how many years left each of them have. Um, I think it's also, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of those particular circumstances each year when they decide whether or not to play and that what's, what's been true for them may not be true forever. So Goffin is an example, Curios is an example of someone who at least at this stage in his career is getting way more out of Davis Cup than he's getting out of tour events in terms of enjoyment and camaraderie and love of tennis. So it could just be the quirks of those four particular guys. And we're, we've redefined everything about the top tier of tennis based on them and their, their specific circumstances, but that too shall pass. And maybe Davis cup will resurge simply because the next generation will care about it more. And, you know, that would be an upset given the direction of things and the overall trends, but there have been plenty of players outside of that group who have who have shown more steady commitment to the competition. Uh, you know, Guffin and Kyrgios, I, I hope they stay committed to it, and I hope those countries stay strong. I really enjoy their their rivalry, um, and I think they match up really well, and it, it, it's fun to watch. And you mentioned maybe Guffin just can't beat top ten competition, and it's not about who's in that group. One thing that I've really enjoyed recently about tennis is the surprising late peaks of players. So I think he continues to get better, even though he's older than the traditional peak age. And I think it's possible that as that group, the group above him, the top four age out, he will keep getting getting better and those two trends will amplify each other and that he will be beating his fellow top 10 players at that stage. You know, that's just one possible route and he could get injured or he may have already peaked, but uh, I think that would be fun to see and would overlap well with Davis cup. I know we're not, we're, we're, we're trying not to revamp schedules too much, but just last week on the show, I was saying, Hey, let's have the men and women play together. So if we're imagining future worlds, I, I do wonder if anyone picks up on that idea, like, you're imagining Canada and Australia being powerhouses for years. I wonder which countries would be powerhouses for years if if the men and women did join join up and create some kind of Fed Davis Cup. Yeah, that's interesting to speculate about, definitely. I think the other issue that you didn't mention with, with top players playing Davis Cup is, and I know there's a ton of proposals on the table, and I, I probably haven't even seen all the things under consideration, but... But to the extent that the schedule stays the same, the, the timing of, of the ties is a big part of the problem. And I don't care whether, whether it happens, Davis Cup happens every year or every two years or every five years. If, if you have someone who, who works themselves to exhaustion to win the U.S. Open, and then they're slated to play a, a Davis Cup tie on, uh, on a different surface a week later on a different continent, then... I think most players aren't going to do it. It doesn't matter how often it is. Um, it's just, um, and I think any, any place you find on the schedule for it, there's going to be issues like that. And that, that's why I phrased the question I did, that there are other issues beyond just players having a finite number of, of ties they're willing to play. It, it, if, if you have it every other year, you're going to have the same conflicts, I think. You just might have a few more players opt to play, um, 
you might get lucky sometimes, but to me, it looks like you have half as much Davis Cup, which is which is a, a major drawback. I know Jim Courier has speculated on having a kind of fifth slam where the site changes every year and everybody goes to one place and plays. That sounds a lot like an exhibition to me, and it, it doesn't sound like it would be all that all that exciting or as much of an achievement for the team that wins to lift that trophy at the end. But but who knows? Obviously, there's lots of variables that that no one's figured out and i'm sure we'll be talking about this for for years just hopefully not for uh for half an hour in every week's podcast um so to radically change subject to the topic back to ski of owning Jeff, I, can i can i can i throw in one thing here uh i'm not even using the inflection of a question because i'm just going to do it uh clearly no one can can suggest changing Davis Cup, except you and I have plenty of ideas, even as we say we don't want to change it too much. Do you think the it would still feel like a like a kind of lame, stale exhibition if the, at least the very first round, when when every country in the world group is playing and, and other countries are, are still in, in various levels, if, if that all happened, let's say, as a lead-up to the Australian Open, somewhat localized, um, if that were like the week before and uh, would, would, be, would, always, would be on the same surface and would be, you know, a chance for players to play best of five and start the season. And, you know, people seem to enjoy Hopman Cup, which is a combined team event that is an exhibition. Do you think maybe that would be a way to, to get players involved and then maybe later rounds could continue closer to what they are now, but it would be smaller groups of players affected. They would know their team is already um, closer to the, to the title. That, that, that's a wacky idea I'm throwing out and I'm ready to hear it uh, torn down. And then we can talk about Schiavone. Um, yeah. My, my first instinct is it, it sounds like, and this is my first reaction to a lot of Davis Cup proposals is it, it sounds like it lessens the event. Like as, as soon as you put it before a slam, it essentially becomes a warm up. And those are kind of the, the lowest men on the totem pole uh, for a lot of the, the tennis season. So, so that seems like a downside to me. And yeah, it, it sounds like Hotman Cup on steroids kind of. And I mean, Hotman Cup is fun. I don't want to rip on Hotman Cup, but, but I don't know. I th- and maybe, maybe I'm just too conservative to see the benefits of a, of a better, different Davis Cup. But it, but it seems like the way the Davis Cup is structured now every Davis Cup weekend is is its own unit. So maybe it's it's scheduled badly because there aren't really four free weekends um, in the tennis in the tennis calendar. Someone's always going to be tired or someone's going to be hurt or someone wants to prepare on a different surface. People always have their reasons, but but as it is now, it's it's never building up to something else. It's never part of some other unit of the tennis calendar. It's always this this freestanding thing. And and I think that that pundits looking for narratives have a hard time with that because when 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 the big four or whoever's hot right now doesn't play Davis Cup, it makes it hard to find a narrative for what's going on exactly. But it means that that when you're there, you're, you're not watching players warm up for a slam. Um, you're not watching something part of any other narrative than Belgium and Australia both really wanting to win this thing. And you know you're on the Australia side, and the Belgium side is making a lot of noise. And it's just it, it it's one of the few times in tennis where it's where the event stands entirely for itself. And aside from big matches at slams, there just aren't that many times in the tennis season that I think fit that bill. And as soon as you move you move the ties to part of some other swing, then you lose a lot of what that is. 
So yeah, I can't argue. I can't argue with that. I mean, I just I think it's it's uh, anything that improves one part of Davis Cup will detract from it in another in another way. So whatever the powers that be decide are the trade offs that are worth it is what we'll see. Yeah, definitely, and and unfortunately, I think the, the to the extent we'll have a public debate over this, it will be picking between between the scenarios that are on the table even if we, we don't care for any of them. So as promised to Schiavone, before we need to, uh, before we need to wrap things up for this week, uh, as, as we discussed about Vondrusova and other WTA international winners, I, I think it would be a stretch to say Schiavone is back or she's a threat again. I don't think anyone is saying that. Um, most of the reactions I've seen to Schiavone's title in this past week is just, Happiness for her, mostly, and she, she's continued fighting uh, when she really hasn't played that well for, for some time. So the things lined up for her this week, that's great. Uh, the, one, the one way this ties into bigger news is, of course, she's Italian. There's a big tournament in, in, in Italy next month, and the Italian authorities have already said they're not giving her a wild card. So, so she's... She's maybe the most newsworthy of the, the Italian women tennis players these days. Uh, and, and not only was she, she doesn't make the Italian Open main draw. She doesn't get a wild card from the authorities. She didn't even get a qualifying wild card. And of course, the, the natural counterpoint to all of that is that Maria Sharapova did. So it's kind of tough to mention one and not the other. We have the, the returning doper um, getting a main draw wild card and the, the local hero who happens to be playing good tennis right now and, and might be a threat given a spot in the main draw, uh, she's on the outside looking in. So, so Carla, this is, this is another topic we need to be careful about not making it the, the entire podcast is wild cards, but let's, let's pretend that's not an issue. Um, do you think Schiavone should, should have a spot in the Italian open draw? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I, let's count the ways. So she's retiring. She says at the end of this year, I always, I always, uh, attribute retirement plans because, they can change on a dime. She is a former French Open champion, two-time titleist. She's been a Fed Cup stalwart. And Clay, this is, even if she's retiring at the end of the year, this is her moment now. It's on Clay. I mean, I was looking at her results the last couple of years, not on Clay, and they've been pretty dismal. I mean, I think she'd won her, she'd lost her last six matches off Clay, and then, and then she gets to Clay and wins a title. Uh, she can certainly play on other surfaces, but at this stage of her career with her abilities declining, this is going to be her part of the season where she can potentially make other runs than ones at, at small events against mostly second tier competition. And she's, she's such a crowd pleaser, or at least she pleases this member of the crowd. But I mean, that's certainly my memory of her French open runs is that players that, that, that fans really respond to her, now somewhat unusual style. She has a one-handed backhand. She comes to net a lot and has, has great volleys. And both of those things outside of her fellow Italian player, Roberto Vinci, are pretty rare on WTA and, and quite rare on clay uh, to see aggressive net play. So I, I just see that as such a missed opportunity. I also think there are developments that can happen between now and Rome that could change that. Like you, you occasionally have openings in, in, in the draw, I, I could still see her, you, you know, these rules better than me. So maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like there's still a way to 
rectify this and that winning this title, I mean, even if she had made the semis or the final, that should have been reason enough. But winning this title has got to make tournament organizers think about it. There also could be some backstory and some politics in Italian tennis that, that is explaining what's happening here. But, but what a missed opportunity it would be if she didn't play Rome this year. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm very curious to see who all the wild cards are in this tournament. We know Sharapova got a wild card, but I, I forget how many spots there, there are in the women's draw for the tournament to give away. But looking at what they, who they've handed these places to in the past, like, there's, there's not a lot of big prospects in Italian women's tennis. You can, you can find young players who are in the ballpark, so players in the top 300 or something who, who you can give the places to. Uh, every country has those people and gives those players a wild card, but there's there's no one, at least who I'm aware of, who who really like you have to give a wild card to. So so you're gonna have Sharapova. You might have a couple other names that that we all recognize, and you're gonna have a couple players who really are are, are glorified buys. They're just probably teenagers who are going to to get the experience, and and they're gonna lose to Allison Risky or someone in the first round, and that's that's who's getting the place instead of Stiavoni. So like you say, I agree. It's a, a huge missed opportunity. And it's, it's also it seems like a, a PR disaster that they could have foreseen because it, it's so obviously paired with Sharapova getting a wild card. And we don't need to cover that ground again, but I think it's fair to, to say that a lot of people aren't going to like that, even though people are going to show up and, and watch her. Um, th there will be plenty of complaints about Sharapova getting the treatment she's gotten. And when you have someone who isn't returning from a doping ban, who is a fan favorite, who is who is retiring this year, who is all these things you've mentioned, I mean, it, you can't you can't you couldn't make up a player who was more deserving of a wild card at a tournament than than this scenario. I don't think so. So to not give her the wild card when you when you are giving one away who's that's so questionable, uh, I, I agree. It's a missed opportunity and it's a bad move for the tournament. Uh, and, and I do hope, as you point out, there's other wild cards can pull out or depending on who they give the wild card to, um, the other wild cards to, those players could uh, could end up making the main draw from other withdrawals, which would mean that the tournament could decide who sort of an, an extra wild card would go to. There's a, Things could change, but, but it doesn't look good right now. Jeff, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't Irani also be... Wouldn't she also need a wild card if she were to get in? Uh, she's also, you know, former French Open finalist, Italian, best on clay, ranking has fallen quite a bit. Yeah, I believe so. I haven't looked at the the entry list, but she's, the last time I checked, she was ranked around 100 in the world. So yeah, she would absolutely need a wild card as well. Maybe Irani Schiavone could get a doubles wild card at least and make a run there, but that would be, that would be a pale limitation of the possibility of, of getting them both into the main draw and seeing some some of those just amazing uh, Italian open crowd environments for those matches. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I was able to go to a couple of days of the Italian Open last year, and it's a, a great site, a really fun tournament. Uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's a, a very fan-friendly sort of event, so I, I, I hope they can, they can make that happen. Um, so in, in our last few minutes this week, I want to talk a little bit about Monte Carlo, which is already underway. Matches are happening as we record this on, on Monday morning. And three of the big four are there, along with some other players who we really care about as well. But we've got 
Andy Murray and, and Novak Djokovic on opposite sides of the draw. Um, Nadal is in, I forget, Nadal is in the Djokovic half, so they would face each other in the semifinal. Um, what do you think, Carl? Are we going to see, are, are those three guys going to make up the two finalists? Wow. I mean, there's, there's this, this is a really tough tournament to predict in some ways because Djokovic and Murray have been out for a while because all, all three of them are, are making their debut on, on European clay. They haven't been out for that long. They've been out since Miami, but because they, they weren't playing uh, immediately after that either. Uh, it feels like it's been a while and they both were out of Miami for injury reasons. So that makes it even harder to assess their current quality. I, on the other hand, this is that, that weird masters that isn't mandatory and the draw is good and better than any 500, but it's clearly missing some, some people too. Um, and because it's that first big event on European clay, it, it can be funny one for players uh, in terms of what their form is now on the surface. So I, I think there's a really good chance. I, I, I think they're the three clear favorites for the title, but I don't know. It feels like maybe under 50% that, that the finalists will be among those two, among those three, just because of the, um, all the uncertainty I mentioned. I mean, Nadal especially has had so much success there. And Djokovic has been right behind him and maybe ahead of him in the last few years at Monte Carlo. So it, that feels like almost a sure bet that one of them will, will make the final. But Murray's half feels like more of an opportunity for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of those people who it's an opportunity for, and I'm stretching the definition a little bit, but I, I really wanted to bring this up. I think it's such a quirky and weird thing is because of the, the nature of the schedule, we just came off the, the, the quote-unquote U.S. clay court championships in Houston last week, uh, and, and most of the American players were there, Isner, Jack Sox, Steve Johnson. Um, so there, there's, there's almost no Americans in Monte Carlo, which is typical. And it, it is, I, I say it's quirky because it's weird, because you've got all these pretty high-ranked players like Isner, Sox, and Johnson who would qualify for Monte Carlo, and, and because, as you point out, it's optional, they choose not to play a Masters 1000 because they want to stay home and play a 250, uh, which is not something you see very often um, from a group of players on the schedule. And it happens every year. Um, it makes sense a little bit because they don't like clay. But then again, the tournament they're staying home to play is just a slightly different brand of clay. But what all this is leading up to is, is there's one American in the draw, and that is Ryan Harrison. So... Harrison landed in the in the top half of the draw. Uh, he he gets Luca Pui, the eleventh seed, in the first round, and after that, if if somehow he gets past Pui, he he gets the winner of Granollers and Lorenzi, which should be a fun one. Uh, so so Carl, any thoughts on Harrison's decision to play Monte Carlo instead of Houston? And bonus question: How far he will go here? He last won a tour-level match on clay at the French Open in 2013, and he's played two since then and hasn't played one since 2014. So yeah, I don't really like his chances against Puy, but I love that he made the trip. I think Houston players could make the trip too. Most of them are not going to make it to that last weekend, and even if they do, it's, it's still possible to make it over. Houston, I'm sure, would accommodate them if they preferred a... Um, 
a Saturday final as a way to to have a better chance of of making it comfortably to Monte Carlo. So it it is really baffling. Here, here's just the last match that Harrison played at tour level on clay, according to the tennis website, tennisabstract.com, was against Donald Young at Houston in 2014. He lost six love, six one to the noted clay specialist, Donald Young. He won 15% of second serve points. His dominance ratio was 0.2, meaning Young's percentage of return points won or was five times higher than Harrison's. Sorry, I just can't get over that he is the one who made the trip. I mean, Sock and Isner and Johnson all have shown some clay proficiency. All could win some matches in Monte Carlo and all would be setting themselves up better for the season. And it's it's just disappointing that American men are still mostly declining to take the season particularly seriously. Yeah, I agree. It, it is it is kind of funny that, that I hadn't looked up Harrison's uh, record on clay. I knew it was pretty pretty weak, as you point out, but I had to ask you the question so that you could look it up on my website and tell me how bad it really was. So so I would say that that my my automatic forecast versus Pui, a, a 75% chance for Pui and a 25% chance for Harrison is maybe something that I should take a closer look at. That maybe is giving Harrison a little too much credit for being good on hard courts and, and the assumption that most players, the hard court skills translate at least a little bit, but maybe not in his case. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, I think Pui is a lot better suited for for hard courts than Clay, but he's, he's won a fair number of matches on on Clay, and including a run to the semis, I think, in Rome last year. So, so um, yeah, I think Harrison will be on an early flight home or flight to whatever 250 he's going to next. But I totally agree. I'm glad he's making the, he's making that choice. And given the, the the prize money and the points on the table, certainly I would think someone like Jack Sock should be should be making the trip, um, even though he's not. By any by any stretch suited to clay like his, his game is so overpowering that he could win some matches and we've seen we've seen isner with the same thing like not a clay game at all but but his game works he can beat good players on the surface so it seems like a, a big missed opportunity to forego a, a masters 1000 with all those points um just really for comfort and and preference of of, of home cooked food or home fans or people being english or whatever i don't know whatever their reasons are so I think that is everything we wanted to touch on this week. Um, Carl, is there anything in the news that you wanted to mention before we shut this one down? I'm going to make a few very quick hits, all Monte Carlo related. One, the last sets that Harrison won on clay were in a somewhat epic, not so epic by Isner standards, lost to Isner at the 2013 French Open. That was pretty memorable for having two Americans go five sets in the second round of the French Open. That qualifies as a big American male result on clay these days. Uh, Harrison won the first two sets, Isner won the fifth, eight, six. I, I remember that uh, being a notable early result in 2013. And, and that, that was the last time it turned out Harrison won a tour level set on clay. Another early result is uh, Schwartzman, Diego Schwartzman, uh, who's at a career best ranking of 41 beating Bernard Tomic, who I think has lost six straight matches since the Australian Open, uh, barely won a set. You know, you mentioned the the future prospects of Australian Davis Cup, and he isn't looking like their best number two singles option. And I think Jordan Thompson played that role in the quarter. So 
kind of puzzling. He's had other weird career outages, but his his for for a pretty young guy, still should be relatively early in his career. He's had a lot of uh, of downward trends already in his career, and and he's the guy who has told journalists he's set for life, and that's that's the main way he wants to be defined. And he, he said it, so it, it's hard to see him as someone who's all that committed to winning any particular tennis match, which is sad to see. I like his game. Um, that's that's all I got right now. Anything else from you? Well, I'm glad you brought those two things up. Those are, are both going to stay in our notes. I, I think in future episodes, we'll have a lot more to say about uh, American performance on clay, especially the American men and their inability to do much of anything on clay these days. And also the the greatness, the wonder, the splendor that is Diego Schwartzman. Uh, he is he's my favorite player on tour. I think uh, him beating Tomic in Monte Carlo has got to be the the least surprising upset of the year in men's tennis. Uh, and and yeah, the, the fact that he's climbing the rankings, he's he's defying expectations at every stage, and, and it's outstanding. I love it. So. So we have him to watch this week. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be, have the, the time and the opportunity to revisit those topics in the future. Uh, there'll be a lot to talk about next week with Monte Carlo in the books as, as well as Fed Cup, which we didn't get to at all. So Carl, thank you as always for, for joining me. Thanks, uh, Jeff. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.